This is my last sermon. What a weird thing. Over these seven years, I have poured hours of spiritual thought into shaping these moments. And let's just be honest. Some were better than others. Some you might remember. Most you will not. And that is just fine. Because the same is true for me. That's why I write it down. Sermons are meant to be bred for the journey. So I don't care if these become unrepeatable events. In some ways, they should be. But this is my last one, so it's kind of a weird thing, and I want you to remember it. So good luck. What word would God have for this community of grace like this? I think I found it. I think it's all in the face of mystery. For years, this is how I've defined faith. I love this definition, but I need you to know that I didn't make it up. I got it from a book by theologian Harvey Cox, and the book's called The Future of Faith. He's quoting a 20th century theologian, Rudolf Otto, who quotes this as faith. Faith is all in the face of mystery. And this is our word for the Lord this morning. I think God wants us to understand the balance between awe and mystery. So let's start with awe. Faith requires it. If we believe in a God that flung stars in space and breathed into the dust to make a person, if we believe that God who performs miracles comes to us in our humanness to show us how to live, then we should be wrapped in awe. But in my lifetime, the Christian talking heads have put more emphasis on valuing certainty than all. And I kind of get it. It's comforting to believe that which you believe is the correct thing to believe. Plus, it sells out conferences and it pushes a lot of books. But I've learned, especially in the last seven years being here, that faith is not certain. What is the point of faith if you are so doggone certain? If you think about it, Certainty can't save our loved ones from dying, nor is it strong enough to offer a balm to our broken hearts, but faith is, and faith can. Faith reaches us at a soul level. You feel it, and when you get down into those levels, certainty becomes a mirage, a loosely held boundary that we erect to try to control the chaos. And what I know for certain is we can't control the chaos. We aren't God. But that hadn't stopped us from trying to be. In our attempt to control Christendom, we have worked overtime to give this mystery a name. We have formed liturgies and we've boundaried ourselves within denominations. We have written doctrines and creeds and by the end of the day, all of these are just loosely held boundaries that we've created to control the chaos. And yet that which came to us, came to us from even beyond. Beyond time, beyond reason, beyond knowing. And this thing, it still comes to us. It still comes to us as mystery. There's no creed or denomination that can fully encompass God, nor does it contain 
how God comes to us. And when you stand in spaces that is full of this kind of mystery, you begin to feel all kinds of things. Some people feel afraid. Some people feel alone. Some people feel ashamed because all of those loosely held boundaries of certainty, they begin to fail. And you feel anxious about where you are and what you think you know. And that's why the world needs the church. It needs help in deciphering and paying attention on how we are approaching mystery. One of the most vivid memories I have of being a pastor here is comforting Jane Beveridge in her final seconds of her conscious life. It was just me and her at UVA's emergency room. I was holding her hand. My nose was inches from her face. She could not talk. She was scared to death. I said, Jane, if you can hear me, blink. She did. If you know who I am, blink. She did. If you're scared, blink. She did. If you know God is with you, blink twice. She did. An hour later, she became unconscious. Days later, she died. This moment reminds me we can feel scared and still be wrapped in awe. Faith is not pie in the sky. It's not wishful thinking. It's hard-earned. And that's the point. Even in the face of uncertainty and death and divorce and pain and hate and doubt and despair, even if you had to crawl yourself from the edges of an abyss, you can still believe in your soul. You can feel it in your bones that God loves you and is for you and is with you in that moment too. Jane understood awe in the face of mystery. I hope by now that you do too. I have tried my best to teach you this, but it's hard to learn it until you come face to face with mystery. So let's talk about mystery. I heard Richard Rohr, my favorite theologian, he said this a few years ago. Mystery is not that which is unknowable, but rather... What makes it mysterious is that mystery is endlessly knowable. I love this. What he means is, you can know mystery. You can name it. You can name where God is and what God is doing in the world around you. But when you name it, you don't name it all. There's still more. Mystery is that which is endlessly knowable. And this is important. If you're going to stand wrapped in awe, faith is not pretending all the bad that happens is somehow good for you. Faith is staring out into the mystery and being in awe that you can see it and you can name it. You just can't name all of it. So you come back to church and you learn a little bit more. You open your Bible and you learn a little bit more. You participate in missions and discover just a little bit more. You sit with this uncomfortable discipline of silence and you feel it just a little bit more. 
Mystery is when we come back to God, back to scripture, back to the great unknown, back to this very room in church and discovering that God is endlessly knowable. And for the last seven years, we kept coming back together and we've discovered this to be true. We kept gathering in the same room. We kept opening the same Bible and we kept finding something new. And I am in all of that. Studying scripture, especially within a congregation, a collective consciousness that gathers, has become all in the face of mystery for me. Scripture is more meaningful to me now than ever. I know firsthand that the power of a congregation gathering to explore mystery is game-changing for a community. So as I leave you as your pastor, I'm leaving with this deep conviction that Scripture is one of the best places we can go, and we should most definitely be doing it corporately if we want to discover mystery. I'm convinced because we've proven it's in the collective worshiping as a people of God that we discover slowly and intimately that which is endlessly knowable. It's the collective that comes to know who God is. It's the body that comes to understand what God is up to next. And a great example of what we're talking about here is 1 Corinthians 13. This is the scripture I want to read. This is how I want to study with you for the last time. It's one of the most recognizable chapters in the Bible, but I bet the Spirit has something new for us to hear. So listen to your soul, with your soul, as I read it again. If I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul's saying that what undergirds our words to one another matters more than our words. What undergirds our social media posts and our text messages and our emails and our gossip chains, what matters more than our words is what undergirds them. What undergirds them should be love. If it's not, it's empty, noisy, a clanging symbol. Look at the language of verse 2. If I understand all mysteries... That's fascinating that it uses that word. I mean, it's saying that you can't know your way into faith. Intellect doesn't replace your need to love. It doesn't replace your need to be loved. And this is mystery in its finest. I don't think I've ever picked up on the depth of verse 2 quite like I do now. And that's because I think my soul is finally ready to hear it. I can hear the Spirit saying, someone will outsmart you, Barrett, or be more well-read than you. But if they don't love, it will never be enough for them. And if you don't lead with love, 
your rebuttal to them won't be enough either. When I started here seven years ago, I wanted you to think that I was smart. It was very important to me. I tried so hard to have all the answers to your questions. I'd say things because I thought it made me look smart. I know now that that was more ego than love. I just wanted you to think that I had all the knowledge, that I had all the prophetic powers. But I can tell you that I didn't fully understand love because I hadn't fully gotten to know you yet. So in my early days, if you go back and listen to me, which I don't know why you would, but if you did, you're going to hear some words that were empty. But I hope I got a little better. You were patient with me. Look at verse 4. You were love to me, because love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. In my resignation letter last month, I wrote these words. Nearly seven years ago, my family moved here for a place to call home. You cultivated that ground for us. You became our friends and family and have helped us raise our kids. I often say my first pastorate is where I learned to preach. My second was where I learned to lead. But here in Waynesboro is where I learned the value and the nature of of true community. And what I am most grateful for is having had the privilege to love and to be loved by you. I mean every word of that. It's been the honor of my life to serve here. You took a chance on a young, energetic minister who used to spike his hair. (laughs) You gave me the grace to fail the freedom to dream, and the love needed to build community. I often tell people one of the best things about this church is the money changers don't make the decisions. The dreamers do. The poets do. And you turned me loose to do that. You have been hospitable and affirming and benevolent in ways that I cannot fully repay or articulate. And I hope you know that I feel as if I have grown as a minister. I am a better Christian because of you, because of your love, because you are patient and kind. And you showing up week after week and doing life with me and us forming this collective consciousness that stands wrapped in awe, it has taught me that kindness is everything. It is the best form and expression of love in the world. I know it is because you have been kind to me. There's so much more I can say about you, but let me let Scripture do the talking. Verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they're going to come to an end. As for tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it's going to come to an end. Paul's words here are beautiful. Love is always posturing towards the beautiful, towards the true, towards the good. And that's what I've seen in you. 
In the early days of my ministry, we enacted and completed a very successful 2020 visioning plan. We thought we were clever in 2016, calling it a 2020 plan. We restructured our staff during the midst of that. We have the best staff we've ever had. We grew our preschool and our kids' ministry, I don't even know, five, six-fold. We launched small groups and did a widely successful faith and film series at the Wayne Theater. We have gone to Habitat together, Brazil together. We've hosted citywide mission events. We've sat for incredibly long and uncomfortable moments of silence after each sermon together, which is still my favorite minute of the week. We have had so many beautiful, well-cooked meals together in the fellowship hall. We've hosted unknown number of community events and forums and services. At the end of 2019, we were rolling our kids and youth and preschool and small groups and worship attendants and diaconate. They were all up and forming and rolling. And then COVID hit. But you didn't stop. You shifted. You repostured. We handmade masks for the hospital. We took over Disciples Kitchen when they shut down with other churches in the community. We completely revamped how to do ministry online and to keep everyone as safe as we could. There has not been a single moment that we can track a super spreader event to something we've done at First Baptist. You should be very proud of that. We opened our fellowship hall for the kids and the preschool teachers to have a safe place for virtual learning so we could open our preschool for dozens more families in the community who were just looking for normalcy in the midst of a world that wasn't. We've given away tens of thousands of dollars to low-income and homeless in the community. We have partnered with every nonprofit that will partner with us to create space for whatever the need is, mostly teenagers. This is love. This is church. And it's all done with a spirit of love. I remember the first Maundy Thursday over COVID. We all took pictures of our individual communion tables. You remember that? It was weird. It was a reminder that Christ still bears all things, hopes all things, and believes all things. We were separated by a pandemic, but love never ended. And now look closely at verse 8. Twice now, Paul has mentioned people who prophesy, people who possess knowledge. Clearly, Corinth is an intellectual community. Paul is reiterating that although these are good things, they don't last. Love lasts. It's bigger and wider than the pursuit of knowledge because as much as you think you know or you think you can do, there's always more you don't know. There's always more you could have done. We are a very knowledgeable community here. We have incredibly gifted people, brilliant scholars and teachers, doctors, lawyers, nurses, engineers, businessmen, women, counselors, helping professionals. We have the most committed group of retirees. I will take a retired school teacher over anyone, any day, for anything. They get the job done, with very little, by the way. You formed an intellectual community here that is beautiful and loving because somehow you knew that as smart as you are, as charming and good-looking as you are, there was still more to do out of love. That's what makes this church so special. 
you operate from a place of love. And I think that's the testimony to this church's health. I don't think I brought that. That kind of spiritual wisdom takes centuries to form and great leadership along the way. I stand on the backs of excellent, excellent pastors before me. You have had decades of wonderful leadership. You are a remarkable congregation that leads with love. And I hope I helped in that. Now, before I wrap this up, because I get it, it's got to come to an end. I want to show you one more thing in the text that has changed my life. This is so good. One of the load-bearing pillars of my theology, something I have gleaned in my time here, is that when we enter the world as a baby, we enter fully tethered to God. We are born in pure essence, and we come from pure love. And we call this tethering our soul. There's more I can say about this. I've preached on this for years, but I mention it now to say not everyone believes this. There's a lot of Christians that outright deny this claim, but I am convinced I have held your babies. I have dedicated them before God and baptized them. I have looked into their eyes when serving communion, and I can see it. Every child is a child of God. They are beloved. They are tethered to the divine. All of them are, and so are you. This truth has completely changed the way I hear verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put away my childish ways. Now, typically what we hear is that this verse is saying, don't be childish. Don't be ignorant like a child. Become an adult. Become more intellectual. And we need to be more rational if we want to understand love. That's how we've interpreted this verse. And honestly, that's probably Paul's original intent, but that has never stopped me from asking different questions. I think he's trying to tell the church to grow up. But here's what's mysterious to me. What if this verse is an indictment on who we've become as adults, as a society, as a people of God? What if Paul is saying, when I was a child, I was connected to divine love. I thought and made decisions out of pure love. And then I became an adult and I severed that connection with God. I put an end to my childish ways. And now I only see in part. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. And then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part and then I will fully know even as I have been fully known. It changes the way you hear the text. I mean, this verse, it pushes me deeper into what is endlessly knowable within Scripture about God. If I'm right, this means that spirituality, grace, church, all of this effort that we give to put money in time, it is for us to reconnect, to retether our souls to God. If I'm right, that is the purpose of all of this. And by the way, I'm right. That's why we have programs. That's why we worship. 
That's why we have an amazing choir and we pour tens of thousands of dollars into resourcing our preschool and kids and youth. It takes a half a million dollars a year to do this and we do it gladly because as an infant, we came into this world already immersed in pure love, pure essence. And as adults, we can do it again. I can't overstate how much this idea has changed my life. It's given me the ability to see others as endlessly knowable, to see strangers as God's beloved. It's given me the ability to look at all people through a lens of love. And it makes me realize that for those individuals that love to hurt and to hate others, that really feel it's like their job to sideline other people because of something in their ego, I hope they know that deep down, they haven't severed their tethering to God. The chances are they've lost awareness of it. And they're just hurt. But we can have compassion on them. And as we all know, hurt people choose to hurt people. So if there's someone in your life that's hurting you, I bet they do it because they're no longer conscious of their tethering to God. And this can get dangerous for you. As Richard Rohr says, if we don't learn to transform our pain, surely we will learn to transmit it. Hurt people hurt people because they think they have to earn some sort of penance or that they're not redeemable so they hate and they hurt they lash out and they strike back but here is the gift of the gospel they are redeemable they are endlessly knowable by God being irredeemable is just not true It's never been true. It's never going to be true. God's love hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. And then verse 13. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. And the greatest is love. Love is what church must look like. Love is what the true power of the gospel gives us. And love is the life-changing hope that can change a community can heal a hurt person and mend a broken heart. Love is the only thing strong enough to do it. It's the greatest enough to heal and to build, to share, and to save, and to make us better versions of ourselves. So I just want to say, I think that kind of love exists in this space. You have formed it, created it, and you've shared it with me. And I'm a better Christian because of it. I hope you are too. I love you. And I feel so grateful to have been loved by you. Amen.